This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello there. I appreciate you listening today. This is Joel Hilliker. These truly are momentous times we're living through. January 16th is a day our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, has called God's Miracle Day. Today I want to explain why that is the case. Mr. Flurry wrote a booklet called January 16th, God's Miracle Day. You can find it at thetrumpet.com under the literature tab. I want to share the content of this booklet with you today, and I hope you'll find this program very inspiring. It shows God's hand at work in his church and in the world in a tremendous way. We'll start by talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Many Bible prophecies show that Christ is going to return to this earth and rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the pivotal event in all of human history. Now, when is that going to happen? The Bible actually gives some very specific clues. It gives some important prophecies of events that will occur just before the second coming. A couple of them appear in the prophecy of Malachi. There, in Malachi 3 and verse 1, God says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. The Bible is clear that this preparatory messenger role was fulfilled before Jesus' first coming by John the Baptist. You can read about that in Matthew 11, verses 10 to 11, and in Luke 7. But John was only a type. He was only a forerunner of a man who would prepare for Christ's second coming. In a related prophecy, in Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6, Malachi wrote, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. And other prophecies show that that great and dreadful day of the Lord, this is the time immediately before the second coming. You can read that in Joel 2 and Revelation 6. Now again, John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy in type in the first century AD. That's also clear from Matthew 11. But the primary focus here is on its latter day fulfillment, immediately before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When Jesus Christ walked the earth in the first century, he directly referred to these prophecies, and he told his disciples about events and signs that would lead up to his return, especially in what's called his Olivet Prophecy, recorded in Matthew 24. And one thing he said there was this, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. That's in verse 14 of Matthew 24. So Christ gave this as a sign of the end of the age, the preaching of the true gospel message in all the world. Now think about that. This means that this prophecy could not have been fulfilled during the many centuries after Christ spoke it, or else it's a failed prophecy. So all of the various versions of the gospel that have been promoted over the centuries 
are false gospels. They are not this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus himself proclaimed or their being spread around the world could not have been a sign that the end shall come. Now put this together with another of Christ's prophecies, this one in Matthew 17, verse 11. He said that the Elijah that Malachi spoke of, the Elijah who would precede his second coming, would restore all things, all the foundational biblical truths. Now that would have to include the understanding of the true gospel. You put all these passages together and you see God himself foretelling the arrival of a man with a God-given message, a man who had the truth of God and preaching that truth around the world as a witness, preparing for and in the days immediately before the second coming. That's what these prophecies say. Now, few people even look at these passages And even fewer believe them. But the fact is, this man has come and gone. This man was Herbert W. Armstrong. Again, how near are we to the final Armageddon? You simply can't realize the significance of recent events in this world. Study the life of this man. God began to work with him in the 1920s by challenging his religious assumptions. Mr. Armstrong was provoked into undertaking an intensive study of the Bible that showed him how so many commonly held Christian beliefs actually contradict Scripture. Most churches congregate on Sunday, but the Bible teaches a seventh-day Sabbath. Most churches teach that the penalty for sin is eternal life in hellfire, but the Bible says the penalty for sin is death. Most churches insist that the law of God is done away. But the Bible plainly says God's law defines sin. God's law is holy and just and good. And we love God by willingly keeping his law, his commandments. All of these statements are plain and clear in the Bible. Mr. Armstrong's study revealed many generally ignored but plain Bible teachings regarding the nature of God, the plan of God, his purpose for creating human beings, the existence of angels and evil spirits, the purpose for the church, and many, many other doctrines. And he even came to understand the key to Bible prophecy, the key to properly identify the signs that Christ gave of his second coming. Just remarkable truths. Now, though Mr. Armstrong didn't recognize it until much later, God was actually fulfilling Christ's prophecy in Matthew 17, verse 11. He was restoring all things through this man, doctrine by doctrine. With these truths, Mr. Armstrong built a church that grew to encompass 725 congregations in 57 countries. And he built a powerful multimedia work that broadcast and published those truths far and wide. Its monthly news magazine, The Plain Truth, peaked at a global circulation of 8.4 million in seven languages. Mr. Armstrong's weekly television program, The World Tomorrow, was by far the most popular religious program in America. Hundreds of millions of his books and booklets were distributed worldwide. 
And on top of that, Mr. Armstrong personally met with and delivered the gospel message to over 500 heads of state in countries around the world. Kings, emperors, presidents, prime ministers, ambassadors, lawmakers, governors, mayors, generals, and crowds of thousands of everyday people. God opened many doors so Mr. Armstrong could fulfill Christ's other prophecy about the gospel being preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. These prophecies prove that his ministry had to be fulfilled before Christ's return. They show that God put tremendous emphasis on the work this man did. Whether or not people realize that Mr. Armstrong's life was a pivotal event in world history. That's what those prophecies tell you. Mr. Armstrong devoted himself wholly to the work of God for nearly six decades. And then in 1986, at the age of 93, Herbert W. Armstrong died on January 16th. Mr. Armstrong's death was a high-profile event. The church received condolences and expressions of respect for Mr. Armstrong from prominent leaders all over the world. Even U.S. President Ronald Reagan acknowledged the occasion. He told Mr. Armstrong's supporters that they could take pride in his legacy. Now, the spiritual significance of Mr. Armstrong's ministry was clear, even during his last years of life. But the deep significance of his death, and even the date of his death, wasn't fully apparent until some time had passed. Whenever and wherever God is working, Satan the devil is active as well, trying to undermine, trying to destroy. Throughout his ministry, Mr. Armstrong had faced opposition and persecution, at times unimaginably intense. Some of the worst of it came from within the organization he founded. But he held those forces back with God's help. He kept the church on track. However, when he died, that satanically inspired opposition was no longer restrained. Before long, it began to wreak chaos within the church, changing doctrines, casting truth to the ground. Now, this directly fulfilled the Apostle Paul's prophecy in 2 Thessalonians 2. There, Paul speaks of a terrible calamity striking the true church of God just before the day of Christ, the second coming. Paul wrote, That day of his return shall not come except there come a falling away first. Within the church he was talking about. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition or destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God. That's talking about the church showing himself that he is God. That's what verses 3 and 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2 prophesy. Now, this is a grievous, mountainous disaster, a man of sin and destruction sitting at the very head of God's church, leading a massive falling away, or as other translations render it, a great revolt, a rebellion or apostasy. 
Now, within that prophecy, notice this detail. Verses 6 to 7 in the Revised Standard Version say, And you know what is restraining him, restraining that man of sin now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, an individual who now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way. Now, as long as he was alive, Mr. Armstrong used God's power to restrain that lawlessness within the church. But then on January 16th, 1986, he was taken out of the way. And with Mr. Armstrong gone, the man of sin, inspired by the devil, began to operate without restraint. The next day, January 17th, marked the beginning of the Laodicean era of God's church, an era that you can see prophesied in Revelation 3, where God says that it is spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So that day, January 17th, also is of great significance to God. You can read a parallel prophecy in Daniel 8, verses 10 through 12. The setting here is also God's church. It's symbolically portrayed there as the temple. And the time setting is, verse 17 says, at the time of the end. Here, the work of the church is typed by the daily sacrifice, the regular temple offerings. And Daniel describes a host, an evil spiritual army, being mobilized against the daily sacrifice, against God's work by reason of transgression. And it says this evil host cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. You can read all about this in Gerald Flurry's booklet, Daniel Unsealed at Last. So on January 16th, 1986, Mr. Armstrong was taken out of the way. On that day, this great spiritual war of Daniel 8 began. On that day, Satan began working mainly through one man dismantling and casting to the ground the truth Mr. Armstrong had taught. If you understand these scriptures, you begin to grasp why January 16th is such a pivotal date. Now let's look at a remarkable prophecy in Revelation 12. This describes a war in heaven where great angelic beings fought against the devil and his demons. It says there in verses 7 through 9, And the dragon fought, and his angels, or his demons, and prevailed not. It says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels, his demons, were cast out with him. So this prophecy speaks of Satan and his demons, of which there are millions, being cast to the earth. When did this happen? God intends us to know, or he wouldn't have given the prophecy. Well, there's a detail here in verse 12 that shows the time frame. It says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. So this is also an end time prophecy. Satan was cast down just a short time 
before Jesus Christ returns to earth and replaces him as the God of this world. That's spectacular news, but in the short term, it does mean a great deal of woe for us on earth. A more evidence of when this occurred appears in the next verse, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. This woman here is described in more detail in verses 1 through 6 here in Revelation 12. It's a symbol of the church of God. And this says that as soon as Satan was cast down, the first thing he did was attack the church. That specifically dates this prophecy. We can point to a specific time when God's true church was forcibly attacked by the devil in this end time. This links directly with the prophecies in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Daniel 8. Satan and his demons were cast down to earth at the same time that he who restrains was taken out of the way. And they immediately invaded the church and began casting truth to the ground. So here again, we see what a decisive pivot point in world history is January 16th, 1986. The world entered a profoundly different time. From that point, Satan and his evil minions were confined to earth. That's brought a whole new level of suffering to this world. Satan is cast down and full of wrath. He and his army are a spiritual force of tremendous evil and destructive power. Now, at the time Herbert W. Armstrong died, Gerald Flurry was a minister in the Worldwide Church of God. And he writes this in his new booklet, God's Miracle Day. I was extremely supportive of the new leadership, But soon I became alarmed by the changes that were taking place at church headquarters in Pasadena, California. I began to search the Bible for answers as to why the church was going astray. In the spring of 1989, God began to show me the answers. I started work on a manuscript that explained 2 Thessalonians 2 and many other prophecies about the church's departure from the truth. That manuscript became a little book called Malachi's Message to God's Church Today. When Joseph Tkach Jr. found out about Malachi's message, he summoned me and my assistant, John Amos, to Pasadena and fired us on December 7, 1989. That marked the beginning of the Philadelphia Church of God. And in this booklet, Mr. Fleury explains how a small group of them had their first Sabbath service on December 16th, and then they got to work refining and printing Malachi's message. Once it was finished, they printed a thousand copies and brought them to the post office to ship on January 11th, 1990. And this was a statement Mr. Fleury wrote toward the end of that first version of Malachi's message. It said this, This message is being received by many people on the very day of the anniversary of Mr. Armstrong's death. We didn't plan it, but we are happy it happened that way. You are going to see the date of Mr. Armstrong's death take on more significance as time goes on. 
And then he wrote this, The third 19-year time cycle of the work of the Worldwide Church of God ends in January of 1991, the same month as the anniversary of Mr. Armstrong's death. Will we see some dramatic event in the world then? What happened on January 16th, 1991, exactly one year later? The United States launched Operation Desert Storm, the Persian Gulf War. In conjunction with the forces of our coalition partners, the United States has moved under the code name Operation Desert Storm to enforce the mandates of the United Nations Security Council. As of 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Operation Desert Storm forces were engaging targets in Kuwait and Iraq. Mr. Flurry continues in this booklet. That correct forecast was a tremendous faith-building event. It showed the significance God puts on the date of Mr. Armstrong's death. Ever since, we have paid special attention to this anniversary. And time after time, we have seen God underline the significance of this date. He has repeatedly orchestrated events, both in his church and in the world, even spectacular miracles, to draw the focus of anyone who is watching. Clearly, God doesn't want us to forget who his end-time Elijah was. God keeps reminding us how important that man is and what he taught through him. I'm Joel Hilliker, and you're listening to Trumpet Hour. We're talking about January 16th, God's Miracle Day, a new booklet by Gerald Flurry. It's available at thetrumpet.com. You can also get a free copy of Malachi's Message there, the book that Mr. Flurry wrote back in 1989 that started the Philadelphia Church of God. We'll be back in a moment. The voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. After Gerald Flurry wrote Malachi's message, the next booklet he wrote was The Lion Has Roared about the book of Amos. Production on this booklet finished around January 16th, 1992. In a sermon he gave December 21st, 1991, Mr. Flurry noted that many people would receive The Lion Has Roared near January 16th. And then he said this, Amos began to speak about his visions two years before the earthquake. And I mean, they had a massive earthquake. You can read about that in Amos 1 and verse 1. And in that sermon, Mr. Flurry noted how much this work is a modern day counterpart to what Amos did. He said this, What if there is another massive earthquake on this earth? What, maybe from two years by the time this book goes, booklet goes out? Brethren, I know that the lion has roared, and when the lion roared in Amos' day, they had a massive earthquake of two years after he started. I wouldn't be even surprised if in within the next two years you don't see a massive earthquake in this world, perhaps even in Pasadena, California. In an October 30th, 1993 sermon, 
near the end of that two-year window, he said, the booklet on Amos will have been published two years at the end of this year. You could say a lot of people even got it around January 16th. Is it possible that God could strike with an earthquake, maybe even on January 16th, 1994? I would say it's possible, especially in the state of California. He backed those statements up with an article in the December 1993 trumpet. He wrote about a prophecy in Isaiah 29 that God says he'll punish Israel with the earthquake. And he wrote, will an earthquake be the next California disaster? Well, on January 17th, 1994, at 4.31 a.m., a massive 6.7 magnitude earthquake rocked Southern California. There's no surprise for any folks this morning, we've been hit with a major earthquake. Right now we're trying to basically gather some more information, trying to figure out where this has been centered. How much of it we can take a look around right now, but half the newsroom behind me has been disheveled. A lot of television monitors knocked off the shelves. Uh, basically a lot of dust kicking around here. We're trying to figure out again where this uh, earthquake has been centered. It hit at about 4.34 this morning. A very sharp jolt. A very long, a very rolling uh, type of motion right now. Again, I'm not sure if we have any more information coming in right now. Right now everybody seems to be scrambling. We're trying to figure out again where this was centered. It killed over 70 people, injured 9,000. It displaced 20,000 people from their homes. Property damage exceeded $20 billion, making it one of the costliest disasters in American history. The epicenter was about 20 miles northwest of Pasadena, California. The ministers of God's church there in Pasadena were well aware of the prophetic role that Mr. Armstrong fulfilled and of the anniversary of his death. This event definitely should have gotten the attention of those men and many, many other people. God was emphasizing that Herbert W. Armstrong was the end-time Elijah. But also, God was demonstrating forcefully that he was continuing his work through the Philadelphia Church of God. As Mr. Flurry writes in this new booklet, when we prophesy accurately that an event might occur on a specific date, it reveals that God is directly involved. The last book Mr. Armstrong wrote was Mystery of the Ages. He called it the largest and most important book I have ever written. He finished it in May 1985, just months before his death. And this book is a magnificent summary of all Mr. Armstrong's work, the accumulated knowledge of his entire ministry. In a September 1985 letter to church members and co-workers, he wrote this, We want to reach the largest audience possible with this book. From the time it arrived from the printer in September 1985 through the end of that year, the book was requested an astounding 740,000 times. That made it the fastest moving, most popular book the church had ever produced. Now, for a while after Mr. Armstrong died, the church kept promoting Mystery of the Ages. They serialized it in the Plain Truth magazine. They distributed over 1.2 million copies. But that effort didn't last long. The doctrinal changes were swift. And by early 1988, the WCG permanently removed the book from circulation, and it actually pitched 120,000 copies of it in the trash. Now, Mr. Fleury 
thought more about Mr. Armstrong's goal of distributing Mystery of the Ages to the largest audience possible. He realized that effort had lasted only two years. And in 1996, he realized we needed to revive that effort. We printed Mystery of the Ages. And in January 1997, we began distributing it freely. Within a month, the Worldwide Church of God filed a lawsuit. This began a massive legal battle between these two churches. Those who upheld the truths God had restored through Mr. Armstrong in direct confrontation with those who wanted those truths to be erased, buried, and obliterated. The PCG won the first round in a Los Angeles courtroom, but the WCG appealed to the Ninth Circuit, which ordered us to stop printing Mr. Armstrong's material and ordered us to pay the WCG damages for our unauthorized printing. We appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court denied even hearing our case. So it appeared the case was dead. But Mr. Fleury had faith that God would work out a way for us to win in the end, some way. He continued to publicly say so. And you can read why he was so confident God would deliver us in his booklet on Habakkuk. That's available at thetrumpet.com. The bottom line is God did work out a way. The WCG began to approach us with offers to sell the copyrights to Mr. The Ages and several other works of Mr. Armstrong that just a short time before they had explicitly said they never wanted published again. Their initial offers were unrealistic. There were back and forth negotiations over a period of months. But finally, the day came when the WCG sent the PCG a message agreeing to sell us all the copyrights we were looking for, for exactly the price we offered. That afternoon, lawyers from both churches conference called the judge with the news that the terms of a settlement had been reached, effectively ending six years of litigation. This happened on January 16th, 2003. This was the greatest victory in PCG history, and God made sure it happened 17 years to the day after Mr. Armstrong's death. What a spectacular miracle. Mr. Fleury writes in this booklet, God's Miracle Day, I can show you several prophecies that reveal what was happening spiritually during that court battle. God was with us the whole way, backing us because we took a stand for his truth and his end time Elijah, and he forced the WCG to sell us those works. The fact that the WCG agreed to this deal on January 16 was an unmistakable sign. First, it points to God's end time Elijah. It shows that there was a great God behind Herbert W. Armstrong. Second, it points to the church today that is still doing the work of Elijah. The end time Elijah died, but the God of Elijah did not. And that same God is backing this work that is holding fast to the truth. The court case victory was a dazzling sign of exactly where the God of Elijah is. God wants to make sure people know where he is. This is something anyone can see. Third, it shows that God was smiting his lukewarm people and sending a strong warning to all enemies of the truth. These are exactly the themes we see over and over with January 16th, God's Miracle Day. 
Now, I'm happy to say that because of that copyright victory, we can give you a free copy of Mystery of the Ages by Herbert W. Armstrong. Go to thetrumpet.com to our literature tab and request a free copy of this life-changing book. The fact that God uses January 16th not only to perform miracles for his people, but also to warn this world, especially the modern nations of Israel, was made clear in another monumental event tied to January 16th, 2003, the very same day we resolved our court battle. That was the day the Space Shuttle Columbia launched for the last time. Three, two, one. We have booster ignition and liftoff of Space Shuttle Columbia with a multitude of national and international space research experiments. Houston now controlling the flight of Columbia, the international research mission finally underway. One woman on board the shuttle, Kalpana Chawla, had emailed her family about how beautiful Mount Fuji and the Sahara Desert looked from space. She couldn't get over the marvel of seeing Earth from space. There really is something special waiting out there for us. But the Columbia's journey ended tragically when, upon re-entering Earth's atmosphere, it disintegrated in a fiery conflagration. Sixteen minutes before touching down, the shuttle exploded over North Texas, where Mr. Armstrong had a college. My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At nine o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia's lost. There are no survivors. Consider the symbolism and the emphasis on January 16th and the number 16. Consider the connection with a man who warned Israel for years and years, a man who died on January the 16th. Also aboard the Columbia was Ilan Ramon, the first Israeli astronaut, whose mother and grandmother were Auschwitz survivors. Ramon wanted this trip to be, in the words of Time magazine, a happy respite from the hard winter for his embattled country. The international Jerusalem Post printed an article titled Remnants of a Dream, Symbols Surrounding the Death of Colonel Ilan Ramon. This man's dream was to go out into the universe, a great adventurous dream. That's where God wants to take us. But his dream ended in remnants. And that's the future for everyone, unless they humble themselves before God. This event made headlines around the world, and it was tied directly to January 16th. It was a shocking warning from God about the fiery end our peoples are coming to. A Jerusalem Post article said, in a country where the main news stories usually change hourly, not daily, the story of the loss of Ramon dominated TV screens, radio, and the press for the whole week. And it was all tied to January 16th and the God of Elijah. Colonel Ramon said, I know my flight is very symbolic for the people of Israel, especially the survivors, the Holocaust survivors. If only he knew how symbolic it was. 
He said, because I was born in Israel, many people see this as a dream come true. We have such lofty dreams. God gives us the ability to dream and dream, but those dreams will always be shattered until we have God ruling our lives, until we find the work of Elijah. God tells us this to help us see reality. He's warning us because he loves us and he doesn't want to see us go through that suffering. And that warning is tied directly to January 16th. All the people in that space shuttle disaster had a dream to colonize space. The God of Elijah says that his people are going to realize that dream in a far more spectacular way than just making a few orbits around Earth. He says he made the whole universe to be inhabited, and he has a master plan for making that happen. That spectacular future was made even more vivid and exciting the very next year, 2004, also on January 16th, when the Hubble telescope concluded 114 days of taking pictures, over 800 of them, of a tiny pinprick of outer space above the northern hemisphere. The resulting image was called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, and it shows a spectacular spray of galaxies, some of them thought to be over 13 billion light years away. Each tiny dot in this image is a galaxy a collection of millions to hundreds of billions of stars. What an inspiring glimpse into the universe future God has awaiting us. God certainly wants to give us that vision to motivate us, and he magnified it by attaching it to January 16th, his miracle day. I'm Joel Hilliker, and you're listening to Trumpet Hour. We're talking about January 16th, God's Miracle Day, a new booklet by Gerald Flurry, available at thetrumpet.com. We'll be back in a moment. Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. In recent years, the curses associated with January 16th have been achingly prominent. The steep moral decline in the United States was highlighted on January 16th, 2015, when the Supreme Court agreed to take up the question of same-sex marriage. Given the political leanings of the justices at that time, it became certain which way the case would go, as it did in June of that year. The court determined to silence dissent on the matter. The country would no longer tolerate any adherence to the traditional biblical definition of marriage. The fact that such a case would even be considered was essentially an official declaration that the Bible no longer has any moral authority in today's America. Then exactly one year later, the worst foreign policy blunder in America's history occurred. On January 16th, 2016, 
the Obama administration implemented its nuclear deal with Iran. The U.S. and the European Union lifted economic sanctions on the terrorist-sponsoring nation, releasing over $100 billion in frozen assets, and they brought Iran into a host of economic deals. The deal gave Iran all the tools it needed to greatly accelerate its race toward building its own nuclear weapons. At the same time this deal was implemented, the White House diverted people's attention from it by making a lopsided prisoner swap with Iran, forfeiting 21 Iranians, seven of them suspects in sanctions violations, 14 of them criminals with international warrants out for their arrest. On top of that, the Obama administration airlifted $400 million in cash to pay Iran for the release of four innocent American hostages. Now, having American hostages freed from unjust incarceration, that's positive. But consider the cost. This deal gave the enemies of America more incentive than ever to take Americans hostage. In this booklet, January 16th, God's Miracle Day, Mr. Fleury wrote, What a scandal! America's conduct in these disasters revealed a people with no honor, no pride, no fighting vigor. Something terrible has happened to our people. The fact that the nuclear deal was implemented on January 16th is a great warning to America. Mr. Flurry wrote, This cataclysmic foreign policy blunder marked a lurch toward the worst suffering ever on this planet. It brought the United States and the world closer than ever to the onset of a biblically prophesied nuclear World War III that will destroy billions of people. The beating war drums intensified. When Mr. Armstrong died on January 16th, 1986, it began the greatest spiritual disaster ever in God's church, at least in terms of numbers. I don't think there's ever been a greater spiritual crisis. 30 years later, on January 16th, 2016, a major step was taken toward the greatest physical disaster ever on earth. Tragedies like this one associated with January 16th show this is the future until we are ruled by the God of Elijah. God's lukewarm people and the whole world ought to get nervous on or around January 16th from now to the end of this age. Now, even though that nuclear deal was disastrous, it also contains good news. Matthew 24, 21 to 22 say, Jesus Christ will return to stop mankind from annihilating all human life. So those war drums also signify the soon coming of the best times ever on earth, a vision of peace, joy, and happiness forever. The good news eclipses the bad news 10,000 times over. The final January 16th miracle we'll discuss happened in God's church on that date in 2017. Mr. Fleury has written a book called The New Throne of David, explaining this momentous event. This was the day that God blessed his church with possession of the very throne that Jesus Christ is about to assume when he returns to earth. Luke 1 Verses 32 to 33 say, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, 
and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So Christ is going to rule from the throne of his father David. God has preserved the rule on that throne by a descendant of David from the time of David up to the present day. You can prove that from your Bible and from history. You can trace that line down to the present day ruling family in Britain. Throughout the generations, a stone of destiny has always been associated with that throne. Queen Elizabeth II She's the latest of many monarchs who were crowned beside this stone, a tradition that goes right back to the time of the kings in the Bible. But on January 16th, 2017, God replaced that stone of destiny with a new stone, and he moved the throne of David from Britain into his own church. Now God's own people will have the honor of personally presenting Christ with this throne when he returns. So it shows how close we are to that event. I would encourage you to request a copy of the new throne of David. Go to the literature library on the trumpet.com and download this book and prove this truth for yourself. It's explained straight from many passages in the Bible. One of these is... The prophecy of Genesis 49, which it says is for the last days in verse 1. And verse 10 there reads, The scepter shall not depart from Judah or a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come or until Jesus Christ come. So this prophecy is directly in the context of Christ's second coming. The scepter spoken of in that verse is the kingly rule, the line of monarchs that will culminate in the reign of Christ as king of kings. And this verse speaks of that rule combining with the role of a lawgiver, someone who administers the royal law of God, which is a priestly function. If you know the history of the throne of David, you know this has not been a function of the physical line of kings. In fact, especially in recent times, they've often fought against the law of God rather than living by it and ruling by it. So this prophecy specifically refers to when the throne and the royal law would be combined. This happened on January 16th, 2017. The scepter must be ruled by the royal law now. And the royal law must be applied to the scepter promise until Jesus Christ come. When God gave the revelation about the new stone on January 16, 2017, the royal family of Britain was displaced as the royal family of David's throne. That was a signal of terrible things to come upon Britain and a sharp decline of America and the Jewish nation of Israel. One astounding aspect of this truth regards the new stone of destiny. I'll read a quote from Mr. Armstrong's autobiography regarding the first public Bible lectures he conducted in his ministry back in 1933. Mr. Armstrong wrote this, Mr. Oberg was starting his new meetings in Harrisburg on Sunday night, July 9th. The Fishers and I decided to start the meetings at the Furbute School the same night. I arrived at the Fisher Farm, leaving my wife and children at our home in Salem about July 5th or 6th. 
This was the small, actually infinitesimal start of what was destined to grow to a major worldwide gospel work, reaching multiple millions of people every week. But if small, it started with a burst of energy and inspiration. First, it started with intensive and earnest private prayer. To the rear of the Fisher Farm home was a fair-sized hill. Running over this hilltop for exercise, I discovered a rock about 14 inches high. It was in a secluded spot. It came to mind how Jesus had dismissed the multitudes and gone up into a mountain apart to pray, alone with God. I dropped to my knees before this rock, which seemed just the right height to kneel before, and began praying earnestly for the success of the meetings. It became a sort of daily pilgrimage during my stay at the Fishers to this which became my prayer rock. I'm sure that I drank in much energy, spiritual strength, and inspiration at that prayer rock. In 2002, Mr. Flurry took a tour of some of the sites of Mr. Armstrong's early days in the work, and he saw this prayer rock. The owners of the property said that we could have it, and that summer, we transported it to our headquarters facility in Edmond, Oklahoma. It wasn't until over 14 years later that God revealed to Mr. Flurry that Mr. Armstrong's prayer rock had replaced the stone of destiny. So once again, God was putting a dramatic spotlight on the man who prepared the way for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it happened right around January 16th, the anniversary of his death. God is continually reminding us that we are continuing the work of Elijah. We have to follow Mr. Armstrong's example and this revelation about this new stone of destiny underlines this point emphatically. Again and again, God is calling our attention back to the pivotal date of January the 16th. He has performed so many miracles on this date. And so many of the most tragic curses on Israel have happened on this date. Those curses are only a type of what's coming on the whole of Israel if they don't take heed and look to the great God who is sending them. Everyone on earth needs to pay attention to this and understand this important truth. January the 16th, study this date and watch for it. It points you to a man around whom so much revolves in this end time, a man who built God's spiritual temple, a man who restored all things, a man who preached the true gospel of the kingdom of God to all nations as a witness a man who warned Israel for decades of the curses and calamities they're about to experience, a man who prepared the way as a messenger before the second coming and whose very work was a sign of the imminence of that earth-shaking event. But far more important than pointing you to a man who died on this date, Studying January the 16th points you to the great living almighty God of Elijah. God's miracle day leads you to the omnipotent God who rules in the kingdom of men, 
and shapes world events to fulfill his prophecies. It directs you to the Father who is correcting the nations out of his love for them to turn them from their sins and lead them back to himself. It draws you to the God who is actively involved in his church, speaking through revelation and opening mighty doors of opportunity. And it helps you come to know the great God of miracles who's about to send his son to put down the rule of Satan, to take his place on the throne of David and to establish his perfect kingdom, administering the government of God and the royal law of God in perfect combination forever. And Christ is coming to set up the kingdom of God a new kingdom altogether, and it is going to replace the governments of this world. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. If you like this program, read Gerald Flurry's booklet, January 16th, God's Miracle Day. You can find it at thetrumpet.com. Also, I'd like to encourage you to become a subscriber to our Christian Living magazine, Royal Vision. We produce this six times a year. It has many articles with helpful instruction, answering important questions on living a godly life. We'd be happy to send you a free subscription. Just email us at letters at the trumpet.com and ask for Royal Vision. And you can send me any thoughts on today's program at that email address as well. Thanks to Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Herbert W. Armstrong. How wonderful beyond the ability of words to express is the glory of God and his wonderful purpose actually now in progress. Praise, honor, and glory be to God and to Jesus Christ forever and forever. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.